Hello, welcome back to Move This World with Sarah, conversations in social emotional learning. I recently sat down with Mark Bertolini, former CEO and chairman of Aetna, and currently co-CEO of Bridgewater Associates. Mark is one of the preeminent thought leaders when it comes to healthcare in America, and I'm excited to share his story. Many years ago, Mark suffered severe injuries from a skiing accident. And after struggling with pain and depression, he was introduced to craniosacral therapy, which began a personal transformation that not only reinvented who Mark was, but also created a ripple effect company-wide. After personally feeling the benefits of yoga, meditation, and a host of other practices and philosophies, Mark did what was at the time the radical move of introducing these and other wellness programs into the workplace, which led to measurable improvements such as 50% decrease in employee stress levels. Joining us was his wife, Mari Arnault, herself a distinguished bilingual educator and occupational therapist. They shared the different ways they incorporate mindfulness into their daily routines and how these practices make them better partners by supporting one another to let go of attachment. We discussed how it's not about devoting an entire hour or day to our well-being, but rather starting with small pieces we find attainable. Consistency has an incredibly transformative power and over time has the deepest impact, not just for ourselves, but for our world. I am so thrilled to be sitting here on this gorgeous day with Mark Bertolini and his wife, Mari Arnaud. Thank you both so much for being here today. Before we dive in into what I know will be a very rich discussion, want to give us an opportunity to center ourselves and ground ourselves and to set an intention as we move forward. So let's go ahead and identify something that we want to let go of in this moment and something we want to take with us. So today I want to let go of anger and disappointment, and I want to take with me action and optimism. I want to let go of fear and worry. And I want to take in acceptance and gratitude. I want to give up my pain, my physical pain. And I want to have hope for the future. Mark, you have been incredibly open about how your personal struggles, your son's illness, your skiing accident, the experience of coping with the pain have led to this catalytic moment of you making a change in your life. And we talk a lot at Move This World about this idea of a crossroads, that oftentimes it takes a moment, a crisis, a reckoning for us to recognize that the way that we've been operating isn't working. I will never forget this one superintendent when I asked him, why is it that now we're investing in social emotional health? What is it about this moment? And he just said, there's been one too many suicides. And because of that, we had to take action. We had to do something. But it wasn't until that moment that action was taken. Do you think that you would have been on this journey regardless of what you would experience, that you would have eventually made your way to some of these health and wellness practices, or it took the crossroads, these catalytic 
traumatic moments in your life to say, I need to make a change? It's hard to reinvent the past as if nothing happened. And who knows, something else might have happened along the way other than what's already happened. The way I think about it is that I tell people that I've been uniquely prepared for the challenges I've had professionally and personally by virtue of that journey. And while I wouldn't recommend it as a developmental path for other people to pursue, it has had profound effect and I wouldn't change it. My typical response to crisis is that I get very cool and I try and figure out what's next. I like to solve complicated problems. The notion of reinventing oneself when confronted with what seems to be impossible obstacles has always caused me to think differently and seek solutions that might change the course of events for me. So I've done everything from 50 milligrams of ketamine an hour for seven days in an ICU in Hahnemann Hospital to try and reboot my nervous system to having people tap on my back and my head. I've tried almost everything that seemed plausible and continue to try to address the issues, particularly my pain first and foremost, but other issues I've confronted in my career or, or personally. And were each of these changes or each of these elements of your cocktail, as I've heard you call them, something that you tried bit by bit? Were they radical all at once? Or did you kind of layer on these different attempts at either pain management or wellness? Well, I was always physically fit. So, you know, I was in amazing shape when I hit the tree and that was not an accident. I, I always enjoyed exercise, engaging in sports. So when I confronted the, the lack of ability to do some of the things that I'd done in the past, like my golf handicap went from 12 to 21. I'm not able to play the piano the way I used to play the piano before. I still ski, I ride motorcycles, I ride bicycles. All of it was about capturing that feeling back of being fit and engaging in the world in a way that created that sense of freedom and ability to accomplish something. So the seeking behavior was one of how do I get back? What I realized soon enough is that you never can go back. You really have to go forward. Was that hard for you? In the beginning, it was hard. And sometimes it still is hard. I get frustrated at times because of my pain or the impact it has on others around me, like Mari, when I'm in severe pain. And so it gets frustrating, contemplated suicide, you know, all those sorts of things that run through one's head. But, you know, in the end, there's always something else that shows up as an opportunity to have hope. That sense of hope and viewing opportunities and this idea of moving forward. I understand you have a deep meditation practice. Does that come from your meditation practice? So Mari is a yoga teacher. She trained with Gary Krafsow at the Vinayoga, American Vinayoga Institute. And I got connected to yoga through Mari. And initially as a physical practice to make up for the exercises I couldn't do anymore, given my injury. And Mari actually spent time designing a program for me because I told her that when she suggested yoga, I said, well, that's for girls. And she said, oh, no, it's not. And she built a program for me that kicked my butt the first time I went through it. And I got into the physical part of it, but very quickly realized there was more than a physical attachment to the practice. And so I went out and bought books the Heart and Science of Yoga by Permalter, which sort of related it to Western religion, which I was, you know, a very, was raised a Catholic, now Reformed. And so by getting into the spiritual side of it, that brought me into meditation. And Mari helped me with that and how to think about it. And 
And what the practice of meditation has done is it has helped me lose attachments that I otherwise had. I remember a time when all my vehicles had to be washed every Saturday afternoon. I actually can't believe I wasted so much time doing that because they <laughs> operate just fine when they're not clean. Whereas Mari, her vehicle gets washed by God when it rains. <laughs> so, you know, this ability to let go of attachments, and I'm far from losing all of my attachments, but changing them, considering them, realizing their attachments and letting them go has been the biggest part of meditation for me, including my former self, who I was and who I thought I was before I got hurt. I'm curious to hear more about your morning routine, Mark. You've talked about all of the different pieces, or I've read about the different elements, asana, meditation. Could you talk us through what that morning routine looks like? And I'm curious, Mari, is yours similar to his? Do you share any of that morning routine or do you keep it really separate? We don't share it. We practice independently. My morning practice hasn't been as religious as it otherwise would have been since I retired when I had a routine before I went back to work again. Every morning I had my mat ready at the bottom of the bed because when I got up, I went on it and practiced because that was it. If I didn't do it then, it wasn't going to happen the rest mm -hmm. of the time. And then the last few years have been difficult for me physically because of the surgeries I've had that left me in a place where I didn't feel I could practice effectively. But I get on the mat probably two or three times a week now and do the physical practice, the asana, and then the meditation, um, and a little chanting at the end. And how does that impact how you are as a person and a leader? It, it centers me and brings me back to, to a better self. I mean, as I tell people I work with, having a personal practice of some sort is important mm -hmm. because you have to bring your best self to what is going to be a chaotic place. And it's always chaotic. I don't care what anybody says. Things happen during the day at work that you never anticipate. And what about you, Mari? How does it show up for you, those morning rituals in the way you function, both as a partner to Mark, as a professional, as a mother? My rituals are more at night, right before bed. So just some very simple breathing exercises or breathing practice that I do right before bed. Sometimes some gentle asana. And then interestingly, I'm, I'm now learning to play the piano and I'm finding that my piano practice is a meditation practice. I can't hide from myself in the piano practice. So, I mean, a practice that I've done for decades is a very simple breathing practice of focusing on the breath and noticing the breath. And then before even realizing it, my mind is off somewhere, rehashing something that happened during the day, perseverating about this, I should have said that, whatever. <clears throat> and mind will be off on one of these tangents before I even realize it. And then as soon as I realize it, label it, okay, thinking about this, back to the breath, right? That's a practice that I have for decades. But when I'm playing the piano, it's more immediate because... As soon as my mind is off on one of those tangents, I'm messing up whatever it is I'm trying to practice. And I guess one way to, to put it is there's the part of the mind that's going off on these little tangents and engaging in fear or worry or rehashing things or perseveration. And then there's the part of the mind that's saying, oh, I left the breath. I'm thinking about this. Let's come back to breath. And there becomes kind of more an awareness of the one who's doing the observing versus the one who is engaging in those thought trains. And that's kind of like 
building a muscle, flexing a muscle. The stronger I've become at identifying the engaging in those thoughts, because it's, you know, it's often difficult thoughts. It's often anxiety or emotionally charged thoughts that are taking me away from breath. Or the more that I've been able to strengthen that muscle of realizing that I'm in that thought train that is often emotionally charged, and I'm identifying with the part of my being that's observing it, the more I'm able to do that when I'm in a stressful situation with people in a work setting or a stressful situation with our fraught world that we're living in right now or a conflict with my husband. Instead of just being so identified with my emotional response, meditation practices have helped me detach from my first knee jerk and be more of an observer. And that, that, that brings me around to a more balanced response, at least part of the time. <laughs> I really appreciate that you mentioned the piano as a mm. another form of contemplative practice. I have a background as a dancer, and I have always felt that dancing, yes, is artistic, is creative, is even spiritual for me, but it's also so mindful because if I step out of the choreography, then I can't do the dance. If I think about what happened that day and... I'm not present to my body, then I can't receive the choreography that's being given. And I think that's a really important point that mindful experiences take so many forms that it's not just about sitting in silence. And meditation doesn't have to be the same for everyone. And the other thing that I love that you said was this idea of flexing the practice and flexing the muscle. I often talk about all of this work especially empathy, is a muscle that we have to flex. And just like you practice dribbling a basketball or arithmetic, we have to practice identifying, expressing, and managing our emotions. And I will fall off. I will be at the grocery store and someone bumps into me and I'm really flustered and I'm sending an email and my husband says, didn't you author an entire mindfulness <laughs> curriculum? <laughs> like, yeah. And we all make mistakes. We all fall off. So I appreciate this idea of flexing and practice. In that same vein, Mark, you've talked about your calendar audit. Walk us through the calendar audit because I think for so many people, the initial resistance is, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to meditate. I don't have time to take care of myself. But here you are with this huge job, huge responsibilities, and you figured it out. So walk us through that process. Yeah, well, it actually started as a self-defense mechanism at work because I found my calendar filling up with things I had no concept of. And I felt like somebody had put a barcode on my right butt cheek and was just <laughs> sending me around from meeting to meeting. And I wasn't feeling like I was being productive. I was like, mm -hmm. everybody had their hand on my back and they were talking for me. Mm -hmm. And so I started this audit of, you know, every week going through the calendar for the next three weeks saying, okay, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Why is this on here? Why is this not? I need space here. I traveled 200 days a year, so I needed time to, to recenter. And I was always worried about getting to bed early enough and getting up early enough to be able to do my practice. So maybe I should look at how I spend my time when I'm not at work. And that gave me this aha of all the things that I was or was not doing that could make better use of my time. Was there anything that surprised you once you did this calendar audit? Like, gosh, I'm spending all this time in X kinds of meetings or Y conversations that I can eliminate. 
in the workplace was, why am I involved in some of these meetings? Other people can make these decisions, which Mm -hmm. ultimately led to the trust model we put in place. I don't know if you've ever looked at Dove Seidman's work on the how of things. You know, it's this idea that trust is like love. In order to get it, you have to give it. If you can trust people and be very clear about expectations, they can make all those decisions you thought you needed to be part of. And guess what? The place still runs just fine. And so that helped me clear my calendar and focus on higher order things, you know, like the strategy and the culture of the organization and how to make it better. It's the same thing in your personal life. How much time do you sit staring at TV or literally sitting there doing nothing, feeling guilty about the fact that you're not doing anything? I look through my calendar probably two or three times a day, looking forward, saying, how am I spending my time? Am I spending it with the right people doing the right things? Because those are the two decisions you control. And who holds you accountable to falling off on both how you spend your time at work and how you spend your time in your wellness? Do you have an accountability group? Is that Mari at home? It's a personal accountability, but, you know, often Mari and I will say, we haven't seen each other. or We're not spending enough time together. You know, let's do some hour time versus going to this fundraiser or going out to meet these people. And all of a sudden you realize you're on a treadmill and you're not spending enough time taking care of one another. And so we often notice that and say, let's Mm -hmm. get away and do stuff for us. I think having that in your partner is so important. You've talked about effective wellness programs, Mark, as being simple, engaging, fit into your daily life, goal-oriented. Did you come about this through your own personal wellness experience? Actually, no, it was when we started thinking about why people didn't engage in their health, we went out and surveyed them. And what we found is that people did not define themselves by their disease. Like, I don't ride and run around saying I'm a spinal cord injury survivor. Mari doesn't run around talking about herself from a disease standpoint. And what they do is they usually define their health as some limitation to a life they otherwise would want to lead. And so it dawned on me after some time, and we did this with IDEO out of Boston, it became evident to me that we needed to start a conversation with the person that said, what is it about your health that is a barrier to the life you want to lead? Because when you do that, all of a sudden it's relevant to them. So when you say to the diabetic with fetal neuropathy, what is it about your feet and legs that bother you and get in the way of the life you want to lead? They'll say, you know, I used to go to the park with my grandchildren to go for a walk. I used to walk to the senior center to play cards. Can't do that anymore. And you say, well, how about if we work on that in a way that allows you to do those things again? Then you re-engage people. It's relevant to them. So we created technologies and tools, for example, with the Apple Watch, which were called next best action. So if you're a diabetic with hemoglobin A1C of 7.2, and it needs to be below seven, and we know that At a minimum, 10,000 steps a day will help you get there with exercise. And you're at home, and with your permission, we have you geofenced, and we know you've only got 8,000 steps and you're about to have dinner. And we say, you know what? After dinner, if you get up and just do four times around the block in the neighborhood you live in, you can hit your 10,000 steps. Go for a walk. That's something simple enough, right? I don't have to do math. I don't have to track anything. You've got evidence about me that you know you can help influence it. And so it kicked off this whole idea of what is the next best action, the next simple thing you could do to improve the quality of your health based on what's relevant to you as a person and achieving the 
level of health you find important to the life you want to lead, then all of a sudden you've got people's attention Mm. versus holding up the cover of Men's Fitness Magazine and saying, here's a perfect healthy person. This is what you need to achieve. And most people go, I ain't going to get there. Right. Right. It's unattainable. It's more discouraging probably than anything. And Mari, when Mark implemented this program to promote mindfulness to employees, you were one of the teachers, correct? I actually initiated the program. It was my initiative. Okay, so you, so your initiative, your brainchild. Gary Craftso designed the program. I was the lead teacher on the East Coast. And then based on my feedback and the West Coast teacher's feedback, he made modifications to the development. I'm curious, going back to this idea of, oh, it's disheartening, it's too hard, I'm never going to get there. Did you face any pushback from people or discomfort, especially the idea of doing this at work? Like, wow, this is pretty renegade at the time. I don't remember any pushback about people taking time during their work day to come to a yoga class. Sometimes they wouldn't show up because their work day was too demanding and they couldn't make it. And then they would come next week very regretful that they missed because they really wanted to be there. But they welcomed the opportunity to do yoga during the work day. Where I got more, I don't know if you'd say pushback, but this program wasn't just an hour once a week during the workday. We gave them little, quote, homeworks. And we built over the course of several weeks, home practices for people to be doing and practices for people to be doing at their desk during their workday on their own. And that's where people expressed that they had much more challenge was initiating and sustaining a practice on their own when they're not in the yoga class with a teacher leading it. So do you think that it comes back to this idea of I can follow if you hold my hand or I can execute on the plan, but taking initiative or building the plan myself can be overwhelming? I think that's a big piece of it. Just showing up to class, now there's a momentum, somebody who's leading and you just plug into the energy of the group. I think that really helps people with any kind of routine. And I also just think that people are very busy and overwhelmed in their home setting or in their office setting, and they're getting pulled by a million things. And typically a yoga class that you attend is an hour, an hour and a half long. And so people would feel like, okay, if I'm going to practice yoga alone at home, I have to do a whole hour or hour and a half, and I have to do it every single day. And that was too high a goal for them to feel would be attainable, and so they wouldn't try at all. And so then we started introducing little five-minute practices and the concept that it's really consistency over time that has the deepest impact not length of any one given practice session. And so let's start with some little piece that feels attainable. Let's see it in a five minute practice, find a time in the day that works for you that you can do it and just gain some traction with doing that every day and starting to actually feel the benefit of it. Because even five minutes every day, if it's consistent, or really just like maybe five days out of seven, if you skip a day, that's okay too. But you start to feel the benefit of that, and then you have a base you can start building on. And then people would feel motivated to start expanding on it in little bite-sized pieces. 
That's so important, this idea of consistency. And we talk a lot about nuggets or kernels of experience. And I often relate it to exercise. Like you wouldn't just go out and run a marathon or climb Mount Kilimanjaro without any kind of training. And just like we learn to brush our teeth every morning, take a shower, these are habits, these are rituals of practice that we can build. Did you get any pushback from folks who felt like this didn't belong in the workplace? or that it would take away from their work-related KPIs? So I was hanging with the people who were showing up for the practice. <laughs> I think Mark can talk more about pushback because he would have spoken to those people. You know, Mari and Gary Craftsell designed the program, and we did a double-blind study in large part because after I had mentioned during a executive team meeting that maybe we should do yoga and mindfulness, everybody politely at the table smiled and said, oh, that's a great idea. And I walked into my office and Lonnie Reisman, our medical director at the time, followed me in and said, you know, you're talking about voodoo medicine and people are going to laugh at you. This is crazy in the corporate setting. I said, well, Lonnie, what would it take? And he said, we need to do a double blind study. So we created a double blind study doing heart rate variability, cortisol levels for stressors because it was a program designed to address stress. We did pre and post measurement. Mari had the students keeping journals. And probably a month after the program was done, Lonnie walked into my office and goes, I can't believe it. The stress levels have dropped 50% in the highest wow. quintile of stress. And the people that were in the highest quintile of stress were spending $2,500 a year more on healthcare every year than the average. So we said, this is huge. Um, and we started to expand the program. But, you know, Mari, she actually started sharing with me information about why are people stressed? And what it evidently pointed to was me. The one person that I interact with any of this that gave the pushback was in the very beginning, Mark was like, no, we're not doing this program at Aetna. And Gary Craftso, my teacher at the time, wanted to break into the insurance world and get health insurance world to acknowledge you know, the benefits of yoga for stress reduction. He desperately wanted to get Aetna to acknowledge him and Mark didn't want to hear anything about it. And I was the one who was working between this deep yoga scholar who didn't know how to speak business and my partner who was the business guy. And I would hound Mark and drill him for information of how do you phrase this? What's the right way to package that? How do you say that? And I think I really annoyed Mark over a series of months getting him to teach me how to speak insurance ease. And I would go back to Gary and say, you got to say it like this. You got to write it like that. So I was kind of like the midwife who helped birth this project. But yeah, the one person I got pushback from was <laughs> Mark. And it was interesting. She's getting through with the program and she's starting to say, do you know that people are working two jobs? Do you know that they're barely making ends meet? You don't pay them enough or you're overworking them? And I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that all the time. And so she brought me the journals some of the students and I'm reading them and I'm going, oh my God, I'm the problem, right? I'm the leader of this joint and the way we operate is killing people. And I remember going to my head of human resources at the time and saying, we've got to look at this data. What are the people at the lowest level, the front lines of the organization? How are they getting paid? How are their families? Blah, 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 blah. And what we found out it was, you know, 7,200 people making $12 an hour. 
They had 30% of their kids on Medicaid because they couldn't afford our dependent coverage. 20% of families were on food stamps. Mm. 80% of the families were single parent women, usually. And they were working multiple jobs. And they were spending their time at break calling bill collectors. So I said, we've got to do something about the wage. And I went through a human resources person who was trying to protect me from the spreadsheet that showed it couldn't be done. And finally, I turned the conversation from, well, don't tell me what the spreadsheet says. What do we need to believe as a team to take this risk on behalf of the people that work for us and ultimately take care of our customers? And they started moving wages from 12 to 12.50. I said, fine. I said, no, stop. We're going to go to $16 an hour. And somebody said to me, well, if we go to $16 an hour, that means they're going to be pushed out of benefits. I said, no, we'll waive any increase in cost of benefits for anybody under 300% of the federal poverty level. So we helped 7,000 people by launching it. And I launched it on January 2nd of 2015 in front of 250 million of our 340 million shares at the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco. And nobody pushed back. I actually had people coming up and saying, good on you. And I remember doing the announcement the day after in Jacksonville, and people thought I was going to lay people off. And I got, you know, I had 400 selfies before I got out of the building because everybody <laughs> wanted a picture with me because it just, we increased people's personal disposable income by as much as 45% on average, 27%. It was all because Mari kept saying to me, do you know what you're doing to the people that work for you? Look at this. And so the conscience, the person sitting on my right shoulder kept saying, you know, you ought to think something about this. And and actually, when I brought it to the team and everybody saw the data, our chief financial officer looked at me and said, are we doing enough? And so we ended up giving permission to the rest of the organization. We had pet therapy in all of our buildings. We doubled tuition reimbursement. We paid back $10,000 worth of student loans a year for people that had loans outstanding. We created charitable funds inside our own foundation at the company for families that were struggling. We created a PTO bank where we could donate the excess of our PTO to people that were in trouble and that needed more time off for their families. We moved people out of harm's way when natural disasters were coming, made sure they and their families and their pets were fine. And all of a sudden, all these ideas, and we probably spent 75 to $100 million more a year. And our stock price went from $39 a share to 208 by the time mm. it was all done. And we created a trust model with our employees all off a simple yoga program. You talk about this transformation, how you were resistant. There was this pushback to what this yoga program could look like in a corporate large-scale setting. And then this former nickname you had of Darth Vader yes, in the workplace. But then all of these incredibly positive, transformative changes that you made that had a ripple effect, not just on your employees, but on society at large... What was the scariest part for you about that transformation? I don't think it was scary. I think it was the natural output of reaching a level of frustration where I couldn't be what I was before because it didn't work for me. I mean, when people used to hum the Darth Vader tune when I walked through the hallways, I was a turnaround guy. I came in to fix businesses that were broken that otherwise were going to go out of business unless I fixed them. And so I was very cold and calculating about it and was successful at it. But in the end analysis, I couldn't maintain that kind of demeanor and approach to my work and manage my pain. The amount of physical change and mental change that occurred with the kind of accident I had, I said, I I can't be that way anymore. 
I can't operate that way anymore because I can't do it physically. Mm-hmm. And so I had to do something to change it. And I wish I'd done it years ago and a lot sooner because it definitely is a better way of operating. And I've achieved even greater results as a result of having the level of empathy, authenticity, and approachability that I didn't have before. Hopefully, we all have learned those lessons and can take a little bit of that spirit of empathy and generosity in the work that we do as we move forward. Thank you both so much for generously sharing your wisdom and your personal experiences with us. Let's take a moment to close before we move on with the rest of our day. So let's reflect on our conversation that we've shared and maybe think about one particular takeaway, one either resonant idea or question that we are holding on to as we move forward. When we have that resonant question, idea, takeaway that we want to hold on to, we can open our eyes and share. Am I doing enough? Mm. And paying it forward. For me, this idea of consistency and ensuring that we build in practices that don't live in vacuums, but can actually move individual lives and communities. For me, that we never really arrive. We're always still in a process. Let's stay awake and alive to that process. Gorgeous. Thank you both so much. Thank Thank you, you, Sarah. Sarah. Thanks for your probing questions and your deep (laughs) listening. for listening to Move This World with me, Sarah Potler Lahane. Before you go, wherever you are right now, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and out. At Move This World, we know social and emotional wellness is necessary, relevant, and impacts our everyday lives at school, in our homes, at our workplaces, and in our relationships. The tools we need to develop are critical for our happiness and success as individuals and as communities. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. To explore more ways to move this world, visit us at movethisworld.com or follow us on Twitter at move underscore this world. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Jonathan Jacobson and Seaplane Armada. I cannot wait to move this world with you.